This Photography News podcast is sponsored by MPB. There's never been a better time to make good use of your kit. Inspire others, make some extra cash and make a difference. Sell your used kit today at mpb.com forward slash sell and let someone else love it as much as you have. In this landscape-focused episode of the Photography News podcast, Will splutters, Kingsley cries, and Roger contemplates a solo career. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Photography News podcast. It is our 24th. My name is Roger Payne and I'm the editorial director at Photography News. And in light of the recent European Super League revelations... I thought as a way to introduce my two colleagues, I would ask them to explain what incentive would tempt them to form a breakaway photography podcast. <laughs> so, let me start by introducing editor of Photography News, Mr. Will Chung. Hi, Will. Hi, Rog. Hi, Kingsley. I hope you're both well. Um, and the simple answer to your question, Rog, is, as with the, super, the Football League itself, money. <laughs> so if somebody came in with a big bribe, I'll be off. Right. Maybe. Well, it's nice to know that you're dedicated to the cause, Will. <laughs> Thank you very much. So, somebody wants to come along and offer you. So, I mean, do you do you want to do you want to name your price at this point, or are you just open to offers? I'm open to offers. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I'm just taking the, the view of the Glazers and um, Fenway and all the rest of them. Right. So Fun potentially drivers. potentially here for a limited time only, editor Will Chung, <laughs> and also uh, introducing contributing editor. Mr. Kingsley Singleton. Hi, Kingsley. Hello, how are you doing? I'm, I'm very good, very good. I'm wondering whether or not I might be doing this podcast on my own the next <laughs> time we do this, because if you're going to say money as well, then it could be all over. Well, I've, I've been tapped up by a niche uh, telephoto lens um, landscape podcast where we only talk about using 300mm lenses. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going for purely um, artistic reasons. I'm not tempted by the money. Right. Okay. So, so I mean, when is that launching? It sounds intriguing. <laughs> Photo artisan monthly or something. Uh, yeah. It's launching. It's the thirty second of this month. It's launching. <laughs> Marvelous. Well, lovely to have you both on board. And as we were discussing before we started, the sun is out and the sky is blue, and I've even got a couple of swallows flying around near my house, which is all rather lovely. So summer is very much on the way. Um, so why not, as usual, start by let's talking about uh, what we've been up to photographically. So, uh, Will, it sounds like because you can now make a trip, you have made a trip, photographically speaking. What have you been up to? Indeed. Um, over the weekend, actually, it was, it was the sun was shining and we thought we'd go do some pictures. This is uh, my partner, Annie and I. And uh, we went down to a place called Mickledeva, Mickledeva Wood, which is a few miles from Winchester, down the M3. And we went there because we thought, well, there, there might be bluebells out. And we thought, well, we actually want to do them properly, but at the right time of day. So we thought we'd do a recce because we, neither of us know this place. So we thought we'd do a recce. So if, when we do our sunrise shoot, we'll know where to park and where to go, et cetera, et cetera. So we went to Mickledeva Wood, which is a forestry commission place. Um, and I took my um, a GFX 50R Fujifilm camera down with me, the medium format. I had a new lens to use on that, which was an IRX. Uh, 45 millimeter 1.4 manual focus lens and as I had it also I had the Fujifilm XC4 so I had that in a backpack too and um, it's a rather splendid day and I was drive the sun shone got some pictures lots of trees a bit of a uh, deliberate camera movement 
Um, it's all good. I um, really enjoyed being out. Actually, you know, because I haven't done a photo shoot for, well, like everybody else, for, for many months. Um, and I came back exhausted, even after a couple of hours walking around the world. So the question is, were there any bluebells? There were some bluebells. I mean, we knew this uh, quite early uh, in terms of bluebell season, we thought, with the cold weather. And we, like I said, I just wanted to recce the place. And there were some, so we did some close-ups and uh, everything else like that. But there wasn't a carpet. It wasn't a profusion of them. So we were aiming to go back in a couple of weeks um, at sunrise. And hopefully all the bluebells are still there waiting for us. That'd be wonderful. I have got a bluebell forest not far from me, or a wood rather than a, a forest not far from me. And as yet, the, there's there's no signs of anything. So it, it's um, and I looked back on my Instagram from last year to discover that um, I'd actually got some shots in that very place in in mid-April, April the twentieth last year. So uh, it it seems that obviously there is uh, there's a bit of a there's a bit of a, a delay in the bluebells coming out. So maybe that's uh, that's. What about you, Kingsley? Are you chasing bluebells at all? Have you seen any anywhere? Well, yeah, actually, sort of remarkably similar to um, what Will was saying. I've I've been just mainly doing scouting um, for kind of for again for sort of bluebell woods and and kind of things locally. So kind of racking up a few hundred miles, just going up and down lanes and trying to find. But also, um, I mean, I had my um, my COVID uh, vaccination. So I, and one of the benefits of that is I can now manage to um, download photo pills and the photographer's ephemeris directly into my brain and uh, I can work out where the sun is coming up and going down and stuff like that. It's brilliant. And talk to Bill Gates and all that stuff. So, uh, yeah, basically just like a lot, a lot of planning, um, kind of wanting to kind of because I think one of the things is, you know, you if, if you're after like a dawn shoot, like Will was saying, you, you don't have a whole lot of time to kind of get there and wander around and 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 also the thing with bluebell woods is that you um you, you don't want to wander around too much because you you, you want to try and preserve them and stay off them and and one of the things i think that irks a lot of photographers is is kind of going to these places and, and just seeing how people have kind of like trampled and trundled all the way through them uh, and kind of wreck wrecked the scene for everyone else i mean uh, i I, I do know where there are some coming up locally and I'm I'm almost keeping it to myself because because you sort of think like if the word gets out, it's just going to be kind of beset by kind of families sort of going in there and taking selfies and stuff with this lovely yeah. blue carpet. And and Kingsley, you were saying earlier that as well as your um, your your largely non-photographic couple of weeks since we last spoke, you have been spending a bit trying time trying to acquire some new kit, have you not? Well, I, I started uh, this has been going on for a while. Um and it's sort of to do with that kind of post-lockdown thing of um, rummaging through your loft, loft and kind of finding old cameras and things. And I and I think I've probably mentioned on here before, but I've got an old Epsom RD1 digital rangefinder. Um, and it struck me basically that I have only ever had one lens for it. And I, and I thought I should kind of, I thought I should add to it. Um, and then but it's a, it's a Leica M mount um, camera. And so I went on eBay and then closed eBay and cried for a bit and decided <laughs> to really afford anything because the, the thing is also that the um the camera actually has a because it's a rangefinder it has a a sort of a little preview window um which you can switch between 50 mil 28 mil and 35 mil on the top um and some of the lenses i was looking at like there was a 90 mil i thought oh that'd be pretty good like a nine, 90 mil f4 but then i thought like well how how am i going to frame that it's going to mm. be really difficult actually to kind of 
um, to work out kind of what, like what the framing is going to be if I don't if there's absolutely no preview on it. So, but I think it's a it's a you know it's a watch this space kind of thing. And and also I, I guess with kind of things opening up again, um, it's kind of reminded me that I might be able to go and sort of wander around some photo fairs and actually maybe you know do a bit of haggling and pick up something there and try it out. Um, rather than just you know haunting eBay like I normally do, because presumably you're not um, totally limited just to Leica glass, though, are you? I mean, you, you, there are other options if you if we've got yeah. a Leica M mount, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think I mean we, we'll be your expert here, but I think you know, there are sort of lots of people that have made M mount lenses over the years. Well, they still do, of course, and your idea of the photographic fair is certainly a good one, actually. Because you can pick up all sorts of bargains and you, you can also pick up one of those little viewfinders that you slide into your hot shoe to perform that function that you, you want it to mm. do, which is get a view of a 90mm lens. But I do wonder though, Kingsley, why are you doing this? I mean, are you seriously going to use the the Epson camera once you've got a lens for it? Or is it just for your, is it gas, you know, gear <laughs> syndrome? Oh, it's a, there's a portion of gas for sure. But um I think that yeah, I, I just one of those cameras that I've always liked using, and it's actually it's it's a it's a it's a really odd little. I don't know how many people have seen them or used them, but it's a it's a kind of a it's a really um, kind of odd little camera. Although it like style wise, you know, basically it reminds me very much of like an X Pro three, you know, because you've got those kind of dials all over the top, and although it has this wonderful little um, little window with these with these needles in it that show you how many shots you've got left and they kind of, they tick round. I mean, it's lovely. It's a lovely thing to use. It's only like six megapixels, but I take it on kind of, you know, city breaks and stuff. So obviously I haven't used it anytime recently, <laughs> but um, it's a nice thing to have. And it, again, it's like one of those cameras, like it, it just looks like an old film camera. So no one really, you know, no, no one's going to be bothering you too much. Well, we look forward to hearing how you get on with that, Kingsey. Um, if anybody's got some old Leica <laughs> glass that they want to shift, then maybe uh, maybe Kingsley could be your could be your man. Uh, from my own perspective, I mean, it, it it hasn't been doesn't seem to have been very long since we last recorded a podcast. So my photographic exploits are, are nothing like as uh, far-reaching as Will's. I've um, bearing in mind we talked about uh, macro photography and close-up photography the last time round. I've spent a little bit of time just with my new newly purchased XE4 and 27mm lens just on its closest focusing distance and just wandering around and seeing what I could photograph. And actually, there's, there's, uh, the, the more you do it, the more you realise you can actually photograph. And uh, because my dog walk tends to be very, very similar every day, largely over the same area, it does actually breathe new life into into a location because you're you start you rather than looking at everything on a large scale you start looking at everything on a much smaller scale so it opens up some interesting photographic opportunities so uh, yeah thoroughly enjoyed that and just a question for you roger i mean how are you getting on with the xc4 you know the lens aside i mean are you enjoying, enjoying using the camera very much so i think um i'm i'm much as i hesitate to agree with kingsley i'm going to agree <laughs> with kingsley in the fact that i bought it with the little thumb rest on it and the, uh, the the metal grip on it as well. And I think that does make a significant difference to how it handles. It handles really quite nicely with those two things on. Um, and I have used it with the 18 to 135 on it, which, um, and it feels perfectly balanced like that. But I think, as I mentioned on the previous podcast, um, the, the main thing for me is just the fact that it's all so quick. After having gone from, you know, I'm sort of two or three generations back with the X100S, my previous, um, my previous camera, um, and everything just is so much snappier. It really does show how much 
the mm-hmm. camera technology has moved on in such a relatively short period of time. Um, so yeah, thoroughly enjoying it. Thoroughly yeah, enjoying it. We thought that it'd be a great time to talk about landscape photography. And we're going to break this down into two different things. So we're going to talk just quite generally to start with. Um, and I'll come to you, Kingsley. Um, obviously, you've talked about doing recce's and, and thinking about going out at certain times of the day. But let's just talk about generally about you're standing in front of a landscape. You've got you've you've got there whatever the time of day it is and you want to take a picture now. From my perspective, often what can be the problem here is that it's a like, well, I put my wide angle lens on and it's like, well, it doesn't quite have the same impact as what I'm looking at. So do you, is that is that a common problem for people, do you think? I think I think the problem there is the assumption that um, a wide angle lens, using a wide angle lens makes for a good landscape. And it, it doesn't. It's how you use it and what you do with it. And Wide angle lenses are things that people are encouraged to buy when they are taking up landscaping and stuff. And, and if you, you know, if you've looked through the um, sort of generations of photography magazines, they'll have probably said, you know, they'll have run a landscape special and then they've done a group test on wide angle zooms or, or wide angle primes or something. Um, but wide angle lenses are actually quite difficult to use in, in reality. To, to get a good picture with a wide angle lens, you have to be you know, pr- pretty, pretty proficient with it. You, and you've got to be very close to the thing that you're photographing unless you just want, you know, unless you just want a load of nothing. And, and there is a, there is a space for that, uh, so literally. Um, but most people want st- stuff going on in the frame. They want, you know, something at the bottom to lead your eye in, something at the top that's the kind of focal point. And if you're shooting, you know, at, at like a what it would be sort of common ultra wide angle focal lengths like 10 mil on an APS-C camera or 14 mil on a on a um, full frame camera you've got to be sort of almost on top of something and that's one of the misconceptions really for me is 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 that yeah that kind of wide angle lenses will automatically create great landscapes whereas actually like actually it's simpler to make a nice picture with a longer focal length something that's a little bit closer to kind of to like a human perspective like a 35 or a 50 kind of thing Mm. And, and what Kingsley's talking about there, Will, really, if you're going to use wide angle lenses, is about introducing depth and sort of interest into the frame, is he not? Yeah, it's interest, it's foreground, it, it's impact. I think many photographers, when they first buy a wide angle lens, they just think, oh, I'll get more in. And they forget that they actually look down at their feet and often what you get is this expansive nothingness, mm. which is what Kingsley's talking about. But by by varying your viewpoint, by by using your feet, by moving, um, and using foreground, then you can get much more interesting dynamic pictures. But it is how you use foreground and the uh, leading lines and things like that are important in terms of composition to to pull the viewer into the scene. So certainly King's is absolutely right about, about how people use wide angles. But easy way to get around it, just use your feet, very viewpoint. But the, the, the other the other kind of thing about wide angle lenses is like the, the sheer field of view of a wide angle or an ultra wide angle lens means that your composition becomes far more complex and therefore more difficult to manage in a kind of a in in a, in, a, in a pleasing way um and and like you know the, the earth is a is a fairly kind of messy place quite often you know there's lots of texture and branches and things that might be creeping in the corners of, of your frame so it's like if you want simplification in landscapes it, it can be better to just to kind of go a bit longer get a smaller view pick out kind of more distant details 
because that kind of you know that the well for me anyway what i like in a landscape is simplicity i i don't want loads going on i don't want it to sort of to kind of stress me out i want to kind of look at it and go ah you know <laughs> now regular listeners to this podcast will be will be non surprised to hear kingsley advocating the use of slightly longer focal length when it comes to shooting let's let's, let's be honest absolutely everything but, but particularly with uh, with landscapes but let's say that one of our listeners has has rushed out and uh, and bought themselves a wide angle zoom or a wide angle prime and is now feeling as somewhat crestfallen about their purchasing decision <laughs> will i mean you've mentioned there about changing your viewpoint you've mentioned there about using your feet um, in terms of things like leading lines and um, and foreground interest when you're shooting landscapes what sort of stuff do you look for to create those lines and that interest <clears throat> i suppose it depends where you are um but if you're on the beach say um, I'd look for some, again, depending where you are, I'll, I'll look for some rocky foreground to fill the, fill the area at my feet, and then that would lead into, into the subject in the distance. Um, it depends what you've got at your disposal. But, you know, if you're out in the, um, the dales, you might be looking at walls, for instance, you know, those, those beautiful walls and lines of walls that pull your eye in. Um, but foreground could be anything. It can, it can even be just something simple. If you're doing, um, I know we're talking landscape, but I thought if you're in the urban landscape, just... You can use a manhole cover if you want. You know, use something graphic and and strong. And I, I like impact. I mean, and I suppose that's where I come from in terms of filling the frame. So don't be timid. You know, do move in close. And if you're worrying about depth of field, then then use a small aperture to get as much depth of field as you can. Or if you're in that that way inclined, you can you can focus stack and do all that sort of thing. Or you can go the other way and actually shoot wide open. Um, just as an example, using this um, IRX lens I mentioned earlier, which is um, it's a 45 millimeter lens on a medium format, so it's, it's equivalent in 35 millimeter terms. is about 35 millimeter, mm. and it's a 1.4 lens. And you, I, I love using it, everything at 1.4. I was shooting trees at uh, Mikuldiva, everything at 1.4, because it just blurred everything, um, and it gave um, because um, aperture, lenses used at their wide apertures often also vignette. And I did a nice, lovely vignette too. So, you know, don't we don't have to do what we said about, about filling filling the frame and using small apertures for depth of field, which is kind of the you know traditional um, technique that magazines and certainly I've advised over the years, but shoot wide open. So a bit of experimentation is is key. But uh, Kingsley, you used to I mean you you're quite a good landscape photographer from what i recall uh, <laughs> from what i've seen um, really? I, but, <laughs> i'm an uh, evidence of that well i think on his on his uh, hugely popular instagram feed there may be some <laughs> maybe some images um but um uh, it strikes me that that one of the reasons why you're successful is you kind of go all in you know you sort of you don't try and take landscape pictures while you're out on a on a day out you actually allocate time to go off and do it if you're if you're away um and then you'll take your filters and you'll take your tripod and you'll actually you'll actually invest some proper time in doing it am i right or are you just pulling faces <laughs> <laughs> no i think that i mean i'd like to think that's what i i try to do yeah definitely i mean because I, I think it's i think when i think people who are into it see it as a like a, a sort of quite a restful experience like a, a kind of a problem solving experience and or, or sometimes a challenging experience like you and forget that you have to actually kind of yomp quite a long way to get to the places that you want um and then you know and then you're sort of caught up in the moment of you know the great light hopefully and the great scene 
that you've you've got in in front of you. Just going back to what Will said about kind of foregrounds and stuff um, with wide-angle lenses, uh, something that you um, a lot of people um, can benefit from is is like is tilting the lens down. A lot of people won't. If 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 you if you tilt a wide-angle lens down, particularly if you're framing vertically, you'll make a lot more of the foreground, and there it kind of becomes more dominant in the frame, um, which can which can kind of help a lot. Um, yeah, going back to my my Instagram thing, I'd like to report that I've gone over three hundred thousand <laughs> followers. Oh, well um, done! Yeah, over three. Is that, that are they flocking to see your landscape imagery, or uh, <laughs> they, what? What is it? What they is will it? Will be, and then they'll be flocking off again. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think to, like you know, the, the the other thing about landscaping, which we we we've probably said before, is that it shouldn't. I don't. I don't think it should simply be about. The picture taking i know which sounds sort of a bit counterintuitive but like it's it's just as much about enjoying being out there and experiencing that those situations and you know the dawn is a is a magnificent thing isn't it and the the kind of the the things you see at dawn are amazing the you know the mist you see and the kind of if you're lucky enough to get up high into the hills or the mountains and see like a cloud inversion or something like that you know that's the kind of stuff that can really stay with you and, and sometimes you 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 know you, you'd be quite right to just watch it you know maybe you don't mm. need to take a picture of it but it, it's it's definitely that kind of whole process of being there as well as as well as the photography just listening to you Kingsley I, I do have respect for what you do and and how you do it. and also people who um who did this sort of thing and, and yomp around the countryside with their kit but it, it takes me back though to um the reader many years ago when I was interviewing him um, and he talked about his landscapes and I thought they were really good so that's why I picked up the phone and interviewed him and um what he said he'd specialise in were what he called cavalier landscapes. <laughs> I thought, what? Not roundhead uh, landscapes. <laughs> well, no, the, the, I don't know, this is a reference to a time when the Vauxhall Cavalier was one of the most popular cars in the country. And what he called a cavalier landscape was he would drive somewhere, park as close as he could to the scene, <laughs> pop out the car, take the shot, and then pop back in his car and go somewhere else. <laughs> so, well, like I said, while I've got every respect for people like yourself who, who do try to get these far-flung locations I must admit, I'm very much into the, the with my bad knees as well now, it seems. I'm much into the, uh, much more into the cavalier landscape than I ever used to be. I think there is, um, I mean, there's definitely something to be said for the, just the, the great things that you can see from a car. Like I'm, I'm suddenly reminded of like the, one of the more recent times I went to the Isle of Skye and um, I was, I went up there with a friend and I was, he was driving and I was, I was, filming with my phone out of the windscreen and I found one of these videos the other day and I just thought god it's so amazing I think it wasn't actually even on the Isle of Skye it was before you got to the Isle of Skye but just kind of twisting through this kind of landscape and I think that this it was raining and the sun was coming out in the distance and you just think god I just want to be back out there and doing that so much so we so we've kind of covered off the wide view we've kind of covered off the wide angle stuff but I think as you're sort of advocating um, and something that, that I think is useful for photographers to try is to like get a little bit more detail and, and break the landscape down into more sort of individual sections rather than just looking at it as a whole. So when you've walked to the top of your hill through, you know, streams and marshes and bogs to get to your location, how, how do you start to do that? How do you start to kind of break a landscape down into the different elements that you end up photographing? Well, I, I think what it is, is it's kind of what whatever kind of um, pulls at your heartstrings or gives you an emotional response yourself. That's the thing that you end up shooting. So you can look around you and you might think, well, everything's great here, but you can't shoot everything. 
So you have to look and think, well, what excites me the most? And it could be like, you know, the the, the distant hill that's rising out of the mist or something. And th therefore that doesn't require the foreground. And in fact, it can look a lot more effective if it's shot, you know, almost like a kind of a like a portrait of the of, of the, the side of a hill or the, the top of a hill from, you know, and it, it could be miles away if you're using a really long lens. But yeah, I, I, I think that's it. I think it's finding the thing that, you know, that, that kind of draws you into the scene and then trying to kind of pack that into the frame. And therefore, that's then what you're kind of communicating to the viewer. Anything to add, Will? You're nodding away in agreement. <laughs> well, I'm nodding off by falling asleep. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think um, the, the thing for me, though, and, and Kingsley has mentioned it. It is timing, and I must try getting at this at this dawn thing and trying to get out and enjoying the mist. I haven't done it for some while, but it is getting out early and getting the right light. And of course, as we go in towards the summer, whether the light from what seven eight o'clock in the morning, maybe to four or five o'clock in the evening, the sun's quite high in the sky and the light is quite harsh as a consequence. Mm. So the the timing of our landscapes during this um, busy season is is all important, and certainly dawn and sunsets are good times. And as Kingsley mentioned, at those times, um, there is no time to hang around. So if you've got an idea in mind, you know, and this, the light is, is changing by the minute as the sun rises or drops, um, you have to shoot quite quickly. So a bit of, bit of pre-planning, bit of Google Earth, whatever you might use, an, an app or two, um, and make sure your filters are packed and you've got all the right filters and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, planning is, is quite important. Um, and I was thinking, I was thinking this because I want to do, I want to photograph the Milky Way if I can this year. You know, I've, I've never done it. I've always had a keen interest in astronomy, um, but I've never photographed the Milky Way. I've seen it, but I'm never taking any pictures of it. And I was thinking, you know, in the next couple of months, I'm going to try and do that. But I'd imagine turning up on the south coast on a beach somewhere, there'll all, there'll all be all these photographers out there with their head torches and <laughs> everything else getting in each other's way. But despite that, that's what I'm going for. And that's that's a way of scenic photography. And it's very different too. Um, and that does take a lot of planning as well. Yeah, because that that's one of the odd things about shooting the Milky Way, if I'm remembering it rightly, is that it's most visible in the summer months because that's the that's point right. at which the Earth has kind of rotated towards it or that's the way, way around. Um, but then equally, you've then got the problem of the fact that you, you know, there's probably there's well, there's a whole lot less darkness during which you can shoot it, and you're you're so you know you're, you're probably looking at it being, you know that 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 kind of that twilight, that nautical twilight that you need, or the astronomical twilight that you need is probably like at two a.m. isn't it, or something like that? You, it you're is really looking all nighter. It is <laughs> definitely all nighters, but I suppose the good thing is once you've done the Milky Way and the sun's coming up, that's the time to enjoy dawn and a few more landscapes. Um, and then sleep during the rest of the day. <laughs> so, so an all night, pull an all nighter, and then shoot the uh, shoot the dawn in the morning, and that's the that's the way to do landscape photography. I mean, it's interesting because, personally speaking, um, I think at, right now at this time of the year, you know, you don't have to be getting up too ridiculously early to get some really nice early morning sort of mists. And and actually, this morning, for example, it was actually still quite. Uh, we had had a frost where we were. And it was a bit misty as well, and the sun was coming out. Even at sort of half six, seven o'clock, it was um, it was a good time to go out and get get images. So it is a good time to go out now. And obviously, it's not too you don't have to be out until half nine, ten o'clock at night either to to get some nicer light in the evening. So it's definitely a good time uh, to be going out and uh, and getting some landscape shots. And and I thought I just wanted to cover off one other technique, which I think is quite an intriguing one for a lot of uh, a lot of photographers. And that's the idea of shooting a panorama. 
Um, and I don't mean like a panoramic mode where you just pan your camera across. I mean actually breaking that down, which is kind of like a little bit what we talked about, where you break um, break the landscape down into constituent parts, take an image, and then and then stitch them together in uh, in software. Um, will you strike me as somebody who will have done that on numerous occasions? So what what's the key to success? Does it? I mean, in terms of like lens, for example, when we're starting with a lens, what, what lens would you pick to do that? Um, you're right, Roger. I've done quite a few panoramas, and um, you know, initially when I started doing panoramas, I thought I would need a, a proper panoramic head, um, and then I, and then I looked at the cost of those, and I thought they'd be heavy to carry around, and especially when you're going abroad as well. And I, I gave that up, and I, I started shooting panoramas handheld. Um, and in terms of focal length, Roger, you're right. You don't, you can't get away with wide angles often because if you're shooting handheld. Um, it, the, the software struggles to stitch parts of it together. So I tend to use, I don't know, around a 50 millimeter lens, maybe 40 millimeter lens. Um, and what I do is um, I shoot upright format. Um, I always shoot starting from the left-hand side and pan right. Um, I always allow some overlap between each scene, so each part of the scene. So as you, as you pan, you need to remember there's a bit you need to cover off in the next frame. Um, and I shoot these, like I said, handheld. I set the camera on manual exposure so that the exposure is consistent from frame to frame. I also shoot manual white balance. So again, the color stays the same from shot to shot. Um, so I focus up, have the camera set, as I, I've just mentioned. Um, and I then literally do maybe eight or nine shots, depending on how wide the scene is. I mean, my, my favorite one was when I went to New York. I know it's not a landscape, but bear with me. And I was on the Brooklyn side of New York, and I did a 26-shot panorama from from the I'm looking at the Statue of Liberty in the distance all the way to I can't remember which bridge it was, the Washington Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge, and that took 26 shots, and I put it into software, and it took Lightroom ages, absolutely <laughs> ages to to sort out, but it worked. I mean, it needed a bit of help. There were a couple of points I had to correct, um, and it ended up being a file so big that if I printed it at 300 pixels per inch, which is a photographic resolution, it was something like two meters across mm. and maybe about, I don't know, about half a meter deep. Um, and that's, a, that's the most dramatic one I've done, but it works and you, you can shoot handheld. Like I said, you've got to be careful. You've got to try and make sure you, you get bits so that the software can marry up when you put it into software. And the manual exposure, the manual white balance certainly helps for the consistency. Um, but I love it when I'm out shooting and I'm in the landscape and I do all the normal stuff with, you know, I've done the 300 mil Kingsley shots and I've done the wide angle leading shots. And I'll go, I'll do a panorama now. And, and, it's how, and, and how wide, I mean, do you do you take into account? Because, you know, 180 mil, 180 degrees, sorry, or, 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 or a slightly smaller area than that? It depends on the scene, Rog. But sometimes it's um, maybe four or five, um, shots just to give you a bigger file of the scene you've got in front of you and like I said I find manual works I mean like I said I, I know many people use a proper panoramic head and if you include foreground that's what you, you, you do need a proper head but like I said when you're shooting a little bit of a distance and using a, a more standard focal length it's, it's amazing what you get away with with and you know I mean you might have to crop a bit top and bottom and things like that but you know, it works in um, in the landscape. Also, works like I said on, in the urban landscape too. And I remember 
doing a wonderful one in Paris from the top of the Notre Dame. This is obviously pre pre destruction by fire. Mm-hmm. And I did like a 15 shot of the Paris skyline. Fantastic. It works really well. And you do get the issues like, you know, if there is movement, um, there can be, you know, it might be somebody walking into the, in your scene, for instance, from one part or the other or, or a car, if it's an urban landscape. And of course, that car or that person can appear in several shots. But hey, that's what Photoshop's for, isn't it? The claiming to me. <laughs> so Kingsley, you've been noticeably quiet. Is this because you've never done this or is this because you've done it before and uh, you're just agreeing with everything Will is saying to keep the theme of the podcast so far? No, I'm going to completely disagree with everything Will is <laughs> So you put it on a tripod. No, I, I would, yeah. No, I, I would kind of. No, I, I'm sort of similar in that, like, I think for me, um, yeah, the, the sort of setting up panoramic heads and stuff is is quite a can be quite a fiddly business, and it's it's about kind of, it's about um, the most sort of exacting results when you're doing that. And, and like Will said about you know if you've got a complex foreground, um, you have to use one because otherwise you get these things called parallax errors where the it's literally impossible for the um, software to stitch something together and it will throw up an error or something. Um, but I mean, in, in terms of wide, uh, you know, how, how wide you would go with a pano, I'm, I'm a sort of a big believer in not going wider than like those old cinema scope films. I think panoramic, panoramic shooting can also sometimes be about like information gathering rather than deciding on a final composition there and then. So if you, if you know there's something in there that you really like, then you can kind of cover the scene and look to kind of crop in, later and that, that's one of the advantages also of using sort of high resolution cameras obviously is that you can take a wider shot and then crop it to a panoramic framing later mm. because that's the kind of part of the scene like there's an example um that i i when i was in jordan i was in the you know the desert area that wadi rum where they filmed the martian and it's an incredible landscape and i, I really wanted to take um a picture like a, a panoramic image of the of of the hills in the distance but all i had with all i'd left camp with was this 20 mil lens so i just thought well i'll just shoot it and, I, and i'll know that i can crop it later and that's what i did because and it's like because it's, it was on my d850 i think so it's like 45 megapixel by the time you crop into the top part of the image you've still got you know a, a, a pretty big file and so when, when it comes to um actually creating stitching the uh, the images together will you said you've used lightroom um, is that your preferred software of choice or, or are there other ones out there that are better at doing that job? Well, I must admit, Roger, going back a little bit, before Lightroom had that functionality, um, I used to use a software called Panorama Factory. Um, and I, I did pay for it and enjoy using it and it was very good. But then when Lightroom came on board with that function, to be honest, I haven't gone away from it. It's, it's, it works really quite well. Um, and sometimes it takes a while and sometimes it does struggle and, and it tells you, you get, you get a message that, you know, it can't compute and it can't make the joiner for you. But it's got three different types of panorama mode on it and, and usually one of them works. And um, so now my, my software of choice is, is Lightroom, I'm afraid. And what about you, Kingsley? I, I, I use Photoshop, just the, the common old guard. I mean, it's the same tool, isn't it? It's just in a different package. I guess it's the photo merge option. Um, Panorama Factory sounds like a, yeah. a sort of <laughs> some sort of child software. He's got a couple of kids on the front. I, quite like <laughs> I was kind of I was more reminded of the Hit Factory, the Stock Aiken and Waterman. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll to Google it. See if it still exists. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my I apologise in advance to the uh, the creators of Panorama Factory. It sounds like it's a decent bit of uh, decent bit of software. 
but hopefully that um, has given you some some good insights, some good tips to getting out and taking some landscape pictures in this uh, far better weather. Uh, and now that we can get out and about, um, we'd love to see any images that you create. Uh, the best way to get in touch with us is either uh, via our email address, which is podcast at photographynews.co.uk, or you can uh, send images to our social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and all of those handles are at Photo News PM. This Photography News podcast is sponsored by MPB. Use their free online valuation tool to instantly find out exactly how much your gear is worth. Get super fast payments straight into your bank account, and if you change your mind at any point, up until you get paid, they'll ship it back for free. Time to answer some reader questions. Uh, all these readers have got in touch with us uh, using the email address podcast at photographynews.co.uk. So if you've got a question that you'd like our team to answer, then please do send them in. We'd love to hear from you. Um, the first one is we're going to hand over to our guys, our friends at MPB, who very kindly support this podcast. And uh, it comes from a chap called Clive Parker in Herefordshire, Herefordshire, when I can say it. And he says, uh, for years, I owned a Sigma 18 to 200 mil F3.5 to 6.3 DC macro OS HSM. Blimey, that's a massive lens name. <laughs> I should have just said he's got a Sigma 18 to 200, shouldn't I? Um, on my Canon EOS7D and took lots of nice close-up photos. But having listened to your recent podcast, I'd like to buy a proper macro lens. What's my Sigma lens worth to trade in and what used options should I consider? So we're going to hand this over to Ian at MPB and here's the answer he came up with. Well, thank you for your question, Clive. Uh, starting with your Sigma lens, um, I would say um, in in excellent condition, which is about the middle rating, I would say, from, from a rating scale, um, I would say we would probably offer uh, around about £100 for that lens. Um, obviously, if the condition is better than than excellent, if it's uh, in light new condition, we might we'll, we will offer a little bit more, and obviously we will offer a little bit less if the lens is in good or well used condition. So going on to um, the lens that you'd replace it with, um, I've opted for three lenses from Canon um, as opposed to um, a third party. The first one of which is the Canon EF 100mm f2.8 uh, macro lens. Now this lens is uh, is very, very good optically. Uh, I would say it's, it's probably as good as an L lens, I would say optically speaking. It's maybe in the construction that isn't quite up to scratch with, uh, with L lenses. So I think if you're someone who shoots, for example, outdoors a lot um, in, in all conditions, uh, when it's been raining or when it's raining, for example, um, this this lens will ha I mean you can still use it but I think you'd have to be a bit more careful with um with with getting moisture in the lens or 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 any or any of the effects from from rain falling onto it. But I think in terms of the lens itself is fantastic. Um, it's got a really good focal length for you to to step back from your subject, so you're not casting a shadow, for example, if you're using natural light. Um, I think uh, the one thing that this lens uh, could do with um, is uh, image stabilization. Um, which it doesn't have. So it would mean kind of shooting in shutter speeds of ideally above 1 100th um, if you wanted to shoot, for example, at smaller apertures. Um, but yeah, this lens is fantastic. Um, it, it's it's highly recommended. Um, I've used it a few times and, and I've always been very, very impressed with the results. And this one can be had for £419 in excellent condition. Um, second on the list 
is probably my pick i would say um in terms of um in terms of the lens but maybe my my needs are a little bit kind of different to yours um you know this lens uh, uh can be used for a variety of different applications and that's the canon ef 100mm f2.8 lis usm macro so a very similar lens to the previous lens except that this one's an l lens so it has kind of um you know professional level construction it's a lot more robust and is obviously weather sealed but more importantly, it has IS, so it's an image-stabilized lens. So that will allow you to kind of get at least three stops of help um, towards stabilizing your images if you're shooting at slower shutter speeds. Um, I, I've used this lens many, many times, and I, I it's one of, easily one of my favorites. It's incredibly sharp, um, incredibly easy to use, um, and it also works great for other types of photography. Uh, if you're inter interested in doing portraiture, or even if you want an option of having a slightly longer lens for all-purpose photography, it's one that can happily live in, in, in your kit bag. Um, it's a little bit more expensive due to the construction and the image stabilization, uh, but this one can be had for um, £709 uh, in excellent condition. So that's the Canon EF 100mm f2.8 LIS USM macro. And finally, in a very similar way to the one we just mentioned, the the 100mm, this is the 180. Um, so this is the Canon EF 180mm f3.5L USM macro. This one doesn't have image stabilization. Um, so I think it's one of those lenses that I think you might need a tripod um, kind of a little bit more often than, than the other ones. But this one allows you to really, really step back if you're shooting um, subjects that, for example, you really don't want to disturb or if you prefer to shoot natural light where you don't want to cast a shadow on your subject. Obviously, um, you know, the, the, the shorter the focal length, the closer you have to get uh, to your subject to get that kind of macro capability. Uh, with this one, you don't have to get as close. So if that's important to you or if the subject matter is something you don't want to disturb, uh, the, the 180mm uh, focal range is, is fantastic for that. Uh, again, no um, image stabilization, but I think it's just one of those pr uh, one of the one of the prices you have to pay um, for for the, the I guess the uniqueness of this lens. I think in many ways, and again, it's beautifully constructed, uh, weather sealed, so um, it will stand to the rigors of uh, obviously rain and and snow and whatnot. Uh, and this one can be had in good condition uh, for six hundred and eighty nine pounds. Good luck. Well, hopefully that's uh, suitable and helpful for you, Clive. Best of luck with uh, choosing a macro lens. Um, now, a couple of questions for us, gents. Uh, let's start with this nice, short and sweet one from Derek Bigger, who's in uh, Cardiff. And he says, do all of the team have camera insurance? If so, why? And if not, why not? Will, are you insured or not? Um, the short answer is no, I'm not. Not on my camera side. I am insured with a house policy and you probably remember a couple of podcasts ago I had an incident with my my laptop where I broke its screen and that covered um, that that particular product was covered under the household policy but I don't have a separate camera insurance policy now um, I, to be honest I'd blow hot and cold on it um, I, and when I was traveling as we were a year ago I did, definitely had an insurance policy but I've let it lapse because I wasn't going anywhere. It's as simple as that. Now, whether I'll go back to having one, I don't know, because, you know, I have quite a few items under the camera insurance that included 
computers and um, screens and uh, hard drives and all the lots lots of the other things, and it was expensive. Um, and like I said, when I had all my renewals come up for travel insurance, is another one. The camera insurance, I, I let them all lapse because, hey, I was in the house all the time, so I thought I'm not going anywhere with this stuff. So, like I said, I think when I go back to it, what I'll do is I'll probably be selective and go. Actually, these are the pit kits I bits of kit I take out more often. And if I do a Kingsley and fall over and break it, then I want that to be covered. Um, but um, right now, honest truth is, no, I do not have a policy. But in a short period from now, I probably will once we start going out shooting again. Interesting. Now, I, I, I'm with you, Will, in the fact that I also don't have any insurance on my cameras. But that is largely because I hardly had any cameras. So, um, and the, the one camera I did have until very recently with my X100S, was probably not worth a huge amount of uh, of money, although obviously sentimental value had it have gone, uh, had it had I have lost it or broken it. Um, so, but I am more seriously considering it now. I would imagine for a much more modest outfit like I've got that the prices probably aren't um, aren't too spicy. So I definitely will be getting uh, some quotes to get that covered. It's interesting, Will, that you say about um, uh, your home insurance. So do you have you basically specified items on your home insurance then or or is it just do you just have a home insurance policy that that covers it? The home insurance policy, Rog, doesn't cover any photographic equipment as such, but it covered that particular laptop. Right. Uh, so okay. I just um, I rung the insurance and said, yeah, I broke my laptop and I had to pay in excess, which which was fine. But um you know, I, I still got a significant percentage of the screen repaired back because right. it was, wasn't cheap getting a replacement um, screen. But no, Rog, to, to answer your question, my, my camera kit was on a separate policy because it was professional insurance. Um, and like I said, it, it wasn't cheap. And like I said, I will go back to it because I've got some expensive kit. I mean, you know, the, I've got Nikon, I've got Fujifilm stuff. Um, and while I try not to leave anything in the car nowadays, so, um, you know, there are times when you, you can't help leave unattended somewhere. Mm. Um, so you have to be careful. Because I think it's generally a bit of a misconception, isn't it, that some people fall into that their home insurance policy will cover uh, their camera kit. So uh, if you are thinking, sitting here and listening and thinking, well, I'm quite smug because if I'm under my uh, home insurance policy, then uh, please do make sure you check the wording. But Kingsley, as the most accident-prone member of the Photography News podcast team, it surely stands to reason that you'll be insured up to the eyeballs, are you not? I am, in, I am insured, but I've never actually claimed anything um, because the stuff I've broken has usually been belonged to someone else. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, I remember once, um, I remember once, I can't remember what it was, like a D90, Nikon D90 that I was using for a camera test. I remember seeing it from a distance slowly toppling off a tripod um and you know and i think it like it it, it I, do you know actually i think the, the camera was fine but the lens it was like the 18 to 105 lens that came with that that was just smashed to pieces but um I'm, yeah i sim i I've, i actually am insured but it's through business insurance um and but i i would echo what you said rog insofar as checking the policy um and it, it, even even phoning up and talking to the people who run the insurance um, and making them known, or rather making it known, if you have any particular items that are over a certain amount of money, because mm. I mean, like you know, insurance companies are there to make money out of you really, and they will probably charge you slightly extra, but it's better than finding out that your 3000 pound camera, you know, is only insured up to 500 pounds because it's a single item. 
so th th those are the funny little kind of um, things in policies that, that tend to kind of um, trip people up, aren't they? They yeah. are indeed. So, so there you go, Derek. I think that's a, a pretty comprehensive answer for you there. It sounds like um, it makes a lot of sense to, uh, to, ha to have camera insurance. I think Will's, option, Will's uh, plan was very sensible. You know, don't have it if you don't really need it. Uh, but now that we're all hopefully going to get out a lot more, um, I think that does uh, that does mean a bit of a green light to get uh, to get some insurance quotes. Have a little shop around, see what the uh, see what the best deals are you can get. Um, so now let's move on to this last question. And Will, you're in the firing line here. I'm afraid uh, it, it comes from Matt P on email, and he says, "I'd like to take issue with Will Chung!" Exclamation mark. He labelled the <laughs> yeah, we, wouldn't we all? Um, he labelled the GFX100S a fantastic camera because it had 100 megapixels. But surely it's more about what's behind the camera that counts. Can he explain his fascination with megapixel counts being the be-all and end-all? Um, right, go well, on, Will, defend yourself. That's an interesting email, Rod. Thanks for that curveball you've thrown me. Um, the, the thing's about it, you know, I stand by that because it is a fantastic bit of kit. You know, you're paying five and a half grand for a body which has got 102 megapixels in it. Um, and I, I'm not one who says the megapixel count is a be all and end all because, I mean, I shoot film pinhole cameras and the megapixel count of that is not much at all. And it is all about the pictures. But the, the analogy I'll use, though, is, is the one, um, let's say, people who've got interest in cars. Now, I have no interest in cars. So I, the other day I was going around the M25 doing 70 miles an hour and, you know, I was legal. Um, I was in the outside lane, I was overtaking the car, da, da 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 and before I knew it, this car was right up behind me. I mean, I saw it as a speck in the distance one second, next minute it was right behind me, it was a Lamborghini, it must have done, I don't know, three figures uh, around the M25, and I pulled out of the way and he overtook me. But, you know, I don't have a thing with people with fascination for high-powered cars, which you can break the speed limit while in this country. You know, if people want to drive a Ferrari or a uh, an MGB GT, whatever it is, fine. Um, so, you know, yes, I'm interested in megapixels and I do need them sometimes. I do make A2 prints, but it is absolutely true. And, and Matt is right that you can get great stuff from, from low megapixels. And the example I use again is there's this picture behind me. It was shot on a, I think, an eight megapixel camera. It's blown up to A1. Um, it was fine. No problem at all. So, um, it, it's fine. I don't have, I don't care if people have a go at me, but I am fascinated by megapixels. Um, I do like the idea of megapixels, but they're not the be all and end all. And Matt is absolutely right. It is the person behind the the camera, Rog. Yeah, on a, Guys, on a separate. Do you think? I mean, I you know, say, I, megapixels or what? Well, on a separate note, Will, thanks for moving over because I was in a bit of a rush and uh, needed to get uh, <laughs> to get somewhere to shoot uh, to shoot a landscape. But uh, I wondered if it was pottering along in that uh, in that outside lane. <laughs> Kingsley, with your six megapixel Epson camera, presumably you completely agree with what Matt's saying about it's got nothing to do with the amount of pixels you've got. I think though that with that Epson, it's a bit like a it's a it's a fun thing. Like if I was doing anything serious, I'd want the most resolution I could get up to a point, I suppose. I, I think like I I don't I mean I know Will referenced the hundred megapixel resolution of that camera, but obviously. There are other things about that sensor which make it an amazing thing. It's the size of the sensor and the kind of the the low light performance and all that kind of thing as well. So it's like, I mean, one one thing I'd say about like resolution is that um, if if Matt does 
kind of get a higher resolution camera we, we don't know what he's got but it's like sometimes you find it's difficult to go back because you you get very used to being able to crop into things and you know and also just kind of zooming in and looking at details and stuff like that you know which you, when when you then put like a 12 megapixel or even an 18 or 20 megapixel file onto the onto the computer and you you suddenly realize you, you reach the end of that potential kind of quite quickly compared to these high resolution full frame sensors that have kind of become i mean i wouldn't say they're run of the mill but like there are a lot of them about now aren't they they're, they're, they're quite kind of you know they're quite well established they're no longer kind of particularly eye rate eyebrow raising you know that it's 45 or fixed 50 or even 60 megapixels especially when something with 100 comes along and kind of cocks a snoop at them <laughs> I, th I think in, in to kind of support you in a little way will um to and to continue again the theme of our generally supporting each other on this podcast which is largely unheard of I think it's more about having more megapixels. It's just about flexibility, isn't it? I mean, so yes, it is about who uh, who's taking the image. But in the same way that if you've got a supercar, you can choose to drive at 150 miles an hour where legal, uh, you know, where you legally can, or you can choose to put it around at 50 miles an hour. And with a 100 megapixel camera, you just have a great deal more flexibility. Whereby, you know, if you want to crop in on a very small part of that frame, you can still get a decent print out of it because you've got the megapixels to allow you to do that so it's just about having it's just it just broadens your options i suppose really doesn't it rather than it being the be all and end all no you're absolutely right there rog but the thing is also for me i mean i, I suppose because i've come from the film background like we all have um and you know it wasn't that long ago i was thinking when um 40 megapixels was a number that we were aiming at and uh, because that was the equivalent then they thought of um a future film a Velvia 50 ISO slide and, and now we're up to 102 megapixels so, so, for, so for me it's just a wonderful thing that we live in this age where we can if we want to shoot these sort of level of pictures I mean absolutely staggering and uh, there was a news story on the BBC website a little while ago and um, somebody had photographed um, I think it was a, a Rembrandt at a Reich Museum in in, um, in Amsterdam and the picture was on the, online and as a function of resolution, you could see so much detail in this Rembrandt, which you couldn't actually see with a naked eye. Um, I, I know that's an aside, but it's, it's, a, it's an interesting use of, of resolution. That's what I think. And I'm fascinated by the way things are going. I do wonder where, where we'll end because, you know, we, we've come a long, long way in, in, in actually a comparatively short period of time. So it's, um, I think it's interesting times. And, and that's why I'm fascinated with the all this megapixel stuff and Kingsley's right as well about the camera having so many other functions, the lovely rounded package. And there is still something about when you when you go an A1 print or an A2 print and you, you start peering at the detail, which I, I know is not the right thing to do. People don't look at pictures, you know, two inches from in front. But when you start looking at the detail and the lack of noise, it's just like, oh, this is good. And I, I'd imagine it's just like the scenario with people in their cars and they, 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 they tap the leather and go, look at this. And, you know, that's a, that doesn't get me, but it does cameras get me. So it's just what I'm interested in. Well, Sorry, there we guys. go. No, that's all right. Nothing wrong with a bit of passion, Will. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. So hopefully, Matt, that, that answers your question. And um, like I said at the start of this section, if anybody does have a question that they'd like to put to us, uh, particularly one that might challenge individuals on the uh, on the podcast, then we'd definitely like to hear from you. Um, podcast at photographynews.co.uk. So I think, gentlemen, we are nearly done with this latest episode. 
of course we wouldn't leave and we wouldn't go out without a Will's word of wisdom. So the floor is yours, Will. What have you got for us? Well, Roger, I was working on the, the, the next issue, which comes out in uh, mid-May. And one of the features I got in there is about software. Because, you know, not only your camera is developing very quickly, but software is coming along too. And one thing I just really encourage this is to do, and, you know, they may be perfectly happy with what they've got, be an Adobe or an Affinity package, whatever they have. But just to try some of these other things that are coming out at the moment. I mean, I've, I've played with something called Luminar AI from Skylum. Um, and that's quite impressive in that it does things like sky, replace, sky replacements, excuse me, very easily. Um, I mean, Kings is a Photoshop expert and he can do this sort of thing easily. But I, I struggle with that sort of thing. But now I've got software I can I can just use for it. And there's also now something called DxO Pure Raw, um, which is a software that uses its uh, deep prime function, which is a, a denoising feature. Um, but now you can what you can do is put your raws through it. And then you come out with a raw at the other end. Then you put it into your Lightroom or your normal package to edit. And the quality of this is package is just amazing. I mean, you can put in, as, as I have done, some old, you know, uh, pictures taken on uh, ISO 3200, ISO 1600. I put it through pure raw first before taking the Lightroom, and the, the the quality is impeccable. So all I'm saying is to listeners is, is my word of wisdom this month is. Um, just try some of these softwares. They're often on a free download, so there's no commitment. You can play with it for maybe 30 days, get the finished result. And actually, if, if you like it, then, then buy it. It isn't that much money now compared with, you know, a new lens or a new camera, and you can get so much more enjoyment out of it. So just enjoy some of the software going around at the moment. I must admit, I'm very guilty of, of sticking with the... Uh you know, the favourites, the the Lightroom and the Photoshop. And uh, as for Photoshop expert Kingsley Singleton, no wonder, <laughs> no, no doubt he is also uh, very much married to that particular bit of software, are you not? Uh, yeah, yeah, but I, I think in a way that's because um, my image editing has become quite a lot more simplified over the years. And I there's just certain things that I know how to do very quickly and ways that I know how to work you know, fast using that software. But I, I sort of, what, what, the reasons I would use for going outside of that would be if I needed specialist things like focus stacking or astro picture stacking and kind of stuff like that. And I, I do feel like, despite kind of feeling like I know my way around something like Photoshop very well, I do feel people's pain because like, who, who don't understand those things, because like when I go into a new piece of software, like particularly if it's like, particularly these astro things, which are kind of knocked up by, kind of you know swiss people in mountain sheds and they're kind of they're just like kind of quite entropic and difficult to kind of understand and um i i realize that that's what you know that's what even though photoshop looks easy to me approaching it for the first time must be quite kind of mind-boggling absolutely well top advice will thank you very much for that um which i think brings us to an end uh, or brings brings us to the end even of this latest photography news podcast thank you very much for your time gentlemen um so until the next time will enjoy your photography enjoy your landscaping and speak to you soon will do thank you take care and also the as i say photoshop expert that is mr <laughs> kingsley singleton we'll see you again next time kingsley yeah it was fun i, I am available for hire for photoshop tuition you know like <laughs> if you want to find where your rectangular marquee tool is 
I'm your man. I've got a load of pictures of really fluffy dogs that I need cutting out. Could you, <laughs> could you do that for me? What's Easy. Cost? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, very much. thanks very much, Kingsley. And uh, we will see you again soon. Cheers. This photography news podcast is sponsored by MPB. Enjoy contact-free doorstep pickups which are safe, convenient, fully insured and completely free of charge. Plus, with a quarter of a million customers and five stars on Trustpilot, you can trust them and sleep easy.